First of all, what I want to say is it's absolutely amazing to be um, invited to speak at an event that's focusing on narrative. Um, I've been, I don't really like labels, in fact I don't like them at all, but if there was one that I might attach to myself it would be a, a narrative inquirer. Um, and I've been involved in doing research, um, starting with my PhD, I'll say something about that in a few minutes, um, using narrative for about 17 years. So actually quite a long time. So 17 years ago, there were even fewer people who were um, using narrative. Um, I'm not sure about in particular in education, but anyway, even fewer people who were using narrative. Um, so yeah, that picture, well, maybe that'll be, be explained later, but anyway, it's a nice picture, isn't it? Trees and autumn, etc. as the equinox is today, apparently. Um, you've got, I got myself sufficiently well organized to be able to send these to Katie, so she has very kindly printed them out. So for those of you who like to make notes as we go along or want to follow anything up with me afterwards, um, there are copies of the slides in the packs that you've got. So this is this is actually what I'm going I'm going to talk about. So so first of all, very briefly, you're going to get my version of narrative research, narrative inquiry. Then I'm going to say something about what I consider to be or what are considered to be ethical complexities and what I've called some cautionary tales. Then something about my use of narrative. And then, um, as, I, as I've put here, it doesn't get funded. Policymakers don't like it. So I'm going to talk about two projects which actually are funded, um, and funded with quite a lot of money, actually, uh, by the ESRC, where widening participation is a very distinct dimension, and they are using narrative. Um, and then finally, I've said, well, why wouldn't it matter, which is, um, also the title of the presentation. Um, okay, so this quote uh, I actually came across just a couple of weeks ago. It's from jo George Monbiot, so Guardian readers in the room will know George Monbiot, I'm sure. Um, I'm not always a great fan of George Monbiot, but I really liked um, these words. Uh, it was, uh, they, they came in, uh, I think he was actually writing about his new book, and I really did like these words. It was, they, they came across to me as if he'd read something about narrative and was reproducing um, the, the words or some of the words that he'd read, but they really um, did speak to me. Um, in particular, I think, um, when we encounter a complex issue and try to understand it, what we look for is not consistent and reliable facts, whatever they are, but a consistent and comprehensible story. So I thought that would be quite a nice way to begin this morning. Um, so how many people in the room actually are, I mean, I, I hate kind of, you know, preaching to the converted, but how many people in the room actually are familiar with narrative? Oh, quite a few of you, right, okay. So you can agree or disagree, you're getting kind of my version of, of narrative this morning. Um, so first of all, I mean, fairly obviously, it is a qualitative methodological approach. And I think it's really important that we remember that. 
that it is a qualitative methodological approach. The journal narrative inquiry, which I guess some of you are familiar with, does sometimes have articles which actually have used quantitative methodologies um, in their narrative research. And of course, you know, numbers, statistics tell stories as well, don't they? They tell particular kinds of stories. But fairly obviously, we're, in, we're interested in depth rather than breadth. Um, there is, certainly as a narrative inquirer, I hold belief in multiple realities. So as a narrative inquirer, I'm not looking for a, a single truth, partly because I don't believe there is one, but anyway, that's, that's my position. Um, what I'm interested in are the truths that people hold. So whatever you hold to be true for you may well be different from what I hold to be true, but that's fine. We're different people with different histories, etc. Um, it is a term that is used, I, I've said here it's an umbrella term, and it does include, and, and you may well have come across others, but narrative inquiry, narrative research, narrative ethnography, autobiography, autoethnography. For me, there are differences between them, although, of course, sometimes they are used together. So in my own work, I have used autobiography and autoethnography. So sometimes people will use them together. I think for me, one of the ways in which narrative inquiry is different is the, is the role of the researcher and the ways in which that is rather more foregrounded. I mean, it is foregrounded in most qualitative approaches, but in narrative, certainly in narrative inquiry, it's, it's rather more foregrounded. Although, as I've said here, that may differ as to the level of reflexivity. And then finally on this slide, um, some words that actually I wrote, but again, I think this is, this is or may be a difference, which is about the relationship. So the relationship between the researcher and the participants in the research is, is rendered transparent, or certainly the researcher seeks to render that relationship transparent so that actually as the reader, you can see how those relationships have actually helped to structure um, the, the text and indeed the analysis of the data, hopefully rendering them, as I've said here, engaging and readable. Um, <clears throat> so fairly obviously it is the methodological use of story and very much about the ways in which people, we, uh, use stories to interpret the world and represent ourselves. So it's retrospective meaning making. So we're, we're looking back and making meaning of what has happened to us. Um, usually as a narrative inquirer, I'm, I'm more interested in the significance of what happened. So the meaning of an event. Um, that doesn't mean I'm not interested in what happened, but I tend to be more interested in what the significance of the event was for you um, or for the, the participant, for the narrator. Really importantly in my view is that narratives are not simply a set of facts. So sometimes, you know, I hear people say, oh well, you know, people tell me their story, you know, of course they're telling me 
their truth or they're telling me the truth and therefore it's much more authentic than if I were to gather data in other ways. Well, insofar as I'm concerned and people much wiser than me, they are social products and they are produced within contexts. So social, historical, cultural locations. And as Kathy Reesman says here, which is a, a great quote, I think, stories don't fall from the sky or emerge from the in innermost self. They're composed and received in context. I'm very cautious about using the word universal, but I do think storytelling is a universal practice. However, the ways in which we tell stories differ, as I'm sure you know, many of you know, from context to context. Um, so, for example, I think it's the Athabascan, who are, I think, a First Nations people in Canada, I think. In their ways of storytelling, they, the audience provides the ending to the story. Um, so I think that is really important. I mean, certainly for me in the work that I've done and do with people from very many different parts of the world, to have at least some understanding that the ways in which people tell and structure their stories differ. So the, the fairly classic Western structure of a story, once upon a time, yet beginning, middle and end, does not necessarily hold in other parts or many parts of the world. But again, as I've said here, I think the ways in which stories are told are very definitely mediated by the context. So you can perhaps think about this in relation to widening participation, which stories are allowable, which stories are dominant, which are not. And as a narrative inquirer, what I'm really interested in is, is, is getting to the stories that are less dominant or that perhaps are counter to the prevailing dominant narrative. Um, so the words here that you can read either now or on your handouts by Josselson, Josselson and Lieblich. And again, I've chosen them because they, well, obviously I've chosen them because they really speak to me, because I think, um, and I say this very often when, I, if, when I'm talking with researchers, doctoral researchers, masters, students, if you're using narrative, I think you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. So if you're the kind of person who really likes certainty, whatever that might be for you, it probably is not an approach that you would really engage with or want to engage with. Personally, I love uncertainty. I absolutely thrive on it. I like being uncomfortable. I like, you know, when I think, oh gosh, that's not what I thought at all. That's completely different from how I thought it would be. I love that, but not everybody does. So the, these words from Josselson and Liebling, for me anyway, are, are really quite important. And then, as they say here, people with certain life experiences in their selected area of study. So it does occur to me, and has occurred to me on many occasions, I I'm, I'm, would have been um, a student with widening participation um, indicators. So as an undergraduate, I was the first person in my family to go on to higher education. Um, my father was a manual worker. I have a, a working class background, fairly low socioeconomic status. So, it, and it's always interesting to me how my own life and what's happened to me has actually really influenced what I've been interested in 
teaching and researching. I, I bet that's very similar for you as well. Uh, so how do we do it? Fairly obviously gathering of stories in any form. Um, narrative interviewing, which for me is a very unstructured way of interviewing. Um, the term co-construction is very often used in relation to narrative. So the idea that, well, I think this happens in any interview personally, but still, the idea that actually in an interview or in a, in a research conversation, together with whoever you're having the conversation with, you are creating, you are co-constructing um, a, a narrative. Um, the unanticipated narrative. So uh, again, this may be where narrative inquiry differs. So in my own PhD, it would be conversations at the photocopier or conversations in the corridor or informal conversations with people that became part of the research. Uh, ethically complex sometimes, but they weren't separate. I didn't kind of separate those out from other parts of the research. The reflecting team, has anybody come across the reflecting team? Um, it's, it's from family therapy actually, so it's where um, people, a group of people um, actually have a conversation focusing on a particular topic. Um, you can ask me about that later if you, if you want to, because it's, it's, but it is a very powerful way of doing research. Collective biography, collaborative autoethnography. So these are some of the ways of actually doing the research and Anne-Marie will probably have others later. Um, the ethical complexities which um, Jacqueline just mentioned and also was, was mentioned in the blurb for the, for the day. Um, well reflexivity is really important and as Pat Sykes says here and I think that would apply to any methodological approach actually, but you may disagree, um, that the importance of reflexity, uh, reflexivity and honesty about one's positionality and its role in sense-making. Um, different situations and cultural settings generate their own ethical questions. Again, for me, that would apply to any methodological approach in any research. But if narratives are mutual constructions, so as I said earlier, you know, that they are co-constructed, who then owns the stories? So in the, you know, fairly traditional ethical practice of member checking, going back to the participant and checking or asking them to check, if actually the story, the narrative has been co-constructed, who, who owns it? Does anybody own it? Do you both own it? Uh, the notion of informed consent being culturally mediated, again, applies to any form of uh, certainly qualitative research. The use of real names, I mean, some of the research I've done, people have said, oh, I want you to use my name, my real name. Then, of course, other people become visible who may not have given their consent. So this is where I think fictionalization, which I'm sure some of you have come across, can be really valuable as a way of telling the story and at the same time protecting people who have not given their permission to have their name used. A um, couple of slides, what, I, what I've called some cautionary tales. Um, I suppose this is a personal, I, I just 
you know, the, the phrase, let the data stand. So the idea that you have pages and pages of transcripts. And if any of you have ever done this, and I have, plowed through pages and pages of transcripts with absolutely no intervention from, from the researcher or the writer. Um, personally, I really don't like that. I, I want to know what the researcher thinks, what kind of analysis have they done. That may, of course, have been in conjunction with the participant. But this notion that they can just stand, you can just put them on the page and leave it to the reader to, to make her or his own mind up. So these really, um, these comments here really relate to what I was saying earlier, um, the notion that participants' voices speak for themselves. I tell you something about myself. I, it's never only about me. It's about all these people behind me that have influenced my life. Um, so, that personal narratives, oral, tes oral testimony and autoethnographies are not unmediated representations. Yeah, the, you know, the good old word generalizability. Well, it's not generalizable, it can't be generalizable, which is of course a criticism leveled at most qualitative research. And as qualitative researchers, we don't tend to set out to do research which can be generalised. But if actually you do believe, as I do, that stories are, stories are social artefacts and they tell us as much about society and about groups within society as they do about an individual, then I think actually you can tentatively claim that what I've learned or think I've learned about a person in a particular context or about some say their learning experiences. Maybe I've also learned a lot about how, thinking about my own PhD, how learning and teaching may be conceptualized in that context. Okay. Right, so these this bit is called me and narrative. Okay, but I couldn't get those words across the top. So um I thought I'd just introduce this bit with it. It's not a plug for my books, but the, the covers are quite bright and colourful. So um, these are, uh, the one in the middle is the book from the PhD, so you may see the resemblance to the first slide. The other four are edited books. Um, yeah, and so lots of people who I've supervised, whose research I've supervised, have contributed to those books, which has been great. Um, so I mentioned my PhD, which is where this really began, um, which was about the experiences of a group of postgraduate students in our then Graduate School of Education at, at Bristol. And that became um, really very autoethnographic, well, very autoethnographic, autoethnographic, because it's, I realised fairly early on that it was disingenuous, or I felt it was disingenuous to be asking other people or inviting other people to talk about their learning experiences if I didn't actually think about my own. Um, so I've done some widening participation projects um, which have all been funded actually by the University of Bristol. Um, the first one, that's a funny title that, um, but it was about, the first one was, um, these are all using narrative by the way. So. I've done other research which has always been qualitative, but these have been specifically using narrative. 
Um, so the first one was about um, how postgraduate students at the University of Bristol from black and minority ethnic backgrounds, what were the barriers they perceived to postgraduate study? So at the time, it's a few years ago now, there was very little, in fact hardly anything, about widening particip participation and postgraduate students. So that was a study that I did. Um, reaching out hard to reach communities was it was about, you might remember this one Anne-Marie, it was about so-called hard to reach communities in the city of Bristol. Um, so we selected sample students by postcode. And then the third one was one that we did with the University of the West of England, which is where we had um, uh, participants were so-called international students and students with widening participation backgrounds. So that was what that study was about. And in fact, Harriet Bradley, who some of you I'm sure will, will know, know about, um, she was the initiator of that particular study. Um, I also did some research with academic stuff in three different universities, um, which was around their experiences of diversity. So di diversity in the learning environment. Um, I was involved in this one called Urge, which was funded by the EU, um, which was really where I was, uh, my role there was, was to, I suppose, to share what were called innovative at the time, it's not that long ago, methodological approaches um, to researching the impact of reform on academics and students. One that I'm still involved in is at the University of Pretoria, so it's a very large a project around Ubuntu which has four clusters and um, they're in this particular cluster that I'm involved in there are ten researchers who are all using some form of narrative so that's South Africa, Kenya and Zimbabwe and we've got a book actually coming out of that project so so it doesn't get funded and policy makers don't like it, okay? So the first slide here is um, an ESRC-funded project funded to the tune of over a million pounds. Um, so it has several strands and I was involved in the bid and for about 18 months led uh, strand two, which was narratives of disabled students' experiences. Um, so we had a group, or we have, I'm no longer involved in the project, um, but we, we had a, a group of volunteers, disabled students, that's how they identify, by the way, um, who volunteered and are working as a group, and what they're doing, they, they have um, an iPad as part of the project, they're using Evernote, and they're creating, um, they're, they're recounting their stories, some of them are interviewing other students. So that's a three-year project, as you can see, it's almost finished. Um, they presented um, at Thinking Futures last year, the ESRC Thinking Futures programme in Bristol, where they used forum theatre. You, have you come across forum, forum theatre? Some, some of you have, yeah. So it's, um, it's actually using, um, using, making use of the audience to, um, 
consider various problems that the perhaps the audience might have but in this case it was where the the co-researchers themselves um, they presented little scenarios of their own experiences and invited the audience um, to participate with them in perhaps looking for particular solutions. Um, so this is leading to significant impact across the university, um, one of which I um, was told only last week um, is an accessible events checklist which apparently we didn't have at the university up until then which quite surprised me but still um, what also surprised me is that departments including physics have requested forum theatre for staff training so in other words to actually work with staff in order to support them to support disabled students much more effectively and um, a couple of the co-researchers are presenting at the ECU, the Equality Challenge Unit Conference, um, tackling the barriers to an inclusive university, the student perspective. So um, I wanted to share that with you because that is, you know, a million pounds plus is a lot of money. Um, and it was uh, certainly that strand, I mean, the whole project is very participatory. Um, but that strand was unashamedly using, using narrative and, and funded. And then the last one is the project um, that I'm involved in at the moment as the um, main UK coordinator, which is SARI, uh, Southern African Rurality in Higher Education. And I'm sorry that the slides look a bit messy here, but I, I have to use our, um, what's it called, template. I have to use our template for the project and I couldn't work out how to get the circles off so apologies for the if it looks a bit messy but we're working with three universities in South Africa Johannesburg, Fort Hare and Rhodes and this project is funded by the ESRC and the Newton Fund and by the Na National Research Foundation in South Africa so we got almost £500,000 I think mm -hmm. here in the UK and I can't remember how much the NRF are funding um, our South African PI, Brenda. It's less than that, but, but they are funding it as well. Um, how am I doing for time? You've got five minutes. Oh, that should be okay. No, okay. So um, the research aims, I think, I'm not going to go through all of them here, but what I wanted to just point out to you is the, is the comment here at the top. We're focusing on rural students or students from deep rural areas of actually South Africa. The research is being done in, in South Africa by those three universities. And as uh, Maguashu, who is, is one of our co-investigators at Rhodes, Emmanuel Maguashu, as he says here, they're one of the most marginalised groups attracting little attention in widening participation research to date. Um, so possibly one of the reasons why, why we got the grant, I guess. Um, but also we're using uh, digital technologies. I'll say a little bit more about that. We, I mean, as I'm sure you all you know, know about uh, roads must fall and fees must fall, etc. So we really, and this is where this really um, draws on a lot of the work I've done around curriculum, um, but the, the notion really kind of challenging uh, the continuing 
um, colonialism in curricula in South Africa. Also, we have uh, connections with eight other Southern African countries through the SALT Forum, the Southern African Universities Learning and Teaching Forum. So this this huge potential here. Um, so it is participatory research, and it's what what we said. I think in the proposal was that we it, the research is informed by narrative principles and practices. And on the right hand side, you can see. So we've got uh, twenty four student co researchers at three different sites. Um, they also have an iPad. They're also producing multimodal artifacts using Evernote. Um, and we, yeah, November, I think, we're doing a workshop with the SALT Forum on the, which is focusing primarily on the methodological approaches that we're using. We're also um, going to be interviewing academics and senior managers in those institutions. Um, so this is, I mean, this is very early stages, but this is some of the emerging data. Some of this is reflected in existing research, but some of it isn't. Um, and for me in particular, because I've, I've been doing a lot of the literature review so far, um, but the, the, the last two comments I've not necessarily seen in the, in the literature so far. It may be there, but I haven't come across it. This notion of, um, and again, this, you know, is very familiar, isn't it? That students being afraid to ask for help because people will think they're stupid. I mean, that can apply to so many different people, I think. But also this, and black and white, by the way, are the words that the co-researchers themselves use. Um, they're, they're this perception of differential treatment. So finishing sentences, allowing white students to talk longer, um, rather solitary, well very solitary. Um, so policy, the impact that we're hoping it will have on policy, um, because we're very much, at the moment, we're very much working, it's the students' voices, which for the student, for the student co-researchers themselves, is incredibly powerful and we've got lots and lots of comments about that about how they really feel that their voices are being heard for the first time, which is a very powerful message for us. Um, so they, they're central to reflecting on the data about their learning lives. That's, that's really been the focus of the group sessions so far. Um, and they're, they're creating these digital documentaries, as I mentioned earlier, um, so we believe, and clearly we uh, persuaded the ESRC that this would happen, that they do have the potential to inform policy and curriculum change. Really importantly, we are enabling the co-researchers to see that they can, and really believe that they can effect change. Um, and then this final comment, which is taken, was made by one of the co-researchers, which, again, for me, I've chosen because I think it's really very, very powerful. This, this metaphor of a closed bottle, this, this, this environment, everyone is like a closed bottle, so afraid to come out of that bottle. 
but I was brave enough. That's why I'm part of this program, which by the way is the project, is the research project, so that I sort of help those who are still in the bottle, who want to come out and don't know how. So um, the final couple of slides, um, I came across these words by Kane et al. fairly recently, and again they seem to speak to me, and in, 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 well, they speak to me about the kind of research that I've done and I'm involved in, um, and they also seem to me to speak particularly to research in widening participation, and I've highlighted certain words there squeezed into the predetermined issue or problem. Um, the policies and practice that extend from such research might miss the very issues they were intended to address or resolve. So finally, why wouldn't it matter? Um, really importantly, I mean, I've got a colleague who says to me, oh, you're a narrative person, you don't like theory. Yeah. And my response is, actually, I love theory, but I'm not driven by it to the extent that I see many other people being driven by it. And I think this is, for me, is actually really important. I do, I do love theory, theories, theoretical ideas, but um, I don't think we always fit into the theory or and or the problem. And um, so I. I I do think it's it's important for me anyway to kind of start with the, the human being and her or his experiences and meanings. Um, clearly I do think that is important and I do think that these kinds of rich in-depth, provided they're contextualised, which is really important, can really resonate with audiences. Um, and can persuade them to effect changes in policy and or practice. Um, and I still find it really, really encouraging, a little bit embarrassing when I get an email out of the blue and somebody says, oh, I read something you read and it's made a real difference to the way I teach or to the attitude I have towards, you know, I just think that's, for me, that's great. Um, so. We don't claim, or I don't claim, that the insights that we gain are conclusive or universal, um, but what we do claim is that we're setting out on the journey, which I guess all researchers are, certainly social science researchers, of unravelling the puzzles faced by all human beings in ways that are plausible, creative, accessible and rigorous. And finally, policymakers find the stories compelling, and that is quote is by Jean Clandinin, who the narrative people in the room will undoubtedly know. She is a great, um, I think she's a great and a Canadian narrative scholar. So that's my bit. Thank you so much.